0: You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for his glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Lots of times I feel the need to come up with insightful ways to convince people who are studying the Bible, like we're doing together this morning, that they're weak, that our wisdom is small, that life is short, that judgment is real, and that we need the Lord. Uh, Today, few of us need convincing of that. Isn't it obvious how fragile we are? How much we don't know. We have enemies we can't even see. That lives that were reasonably stable a few weeks ago are now really uncertain. The only thing growing faster than corona cases are the number of cancellations. People in Catawba County are ransacking, and I mean ransacking, the toilet paper aisle... For now, some of us are freaking out. Others of us are saying, oh, it's just a bunch of media hype. It's just going to blow over like everything else. But every single one of us are trying to settle into some kind of new normal. It, It might blow over as quickly as it came home. But it might get worse. It might get a lot worse. Which means that we need to know, in our souls, the truth. The truth about God, about His character, about His promises and His plans. Right before His brutal arrest, and then His torture, and then His crucifixion, the Savior gathered His disciples together. And here's what He said to them. This is going to get bad. It's going to be worse than you can imagine. But then He made them a promise. It's a promise that He wants you and me to overhear. And to believe. Jesus said, John 16, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me, in me, you might have peace. In the world, you have tribulation. But Then he says, take courage. I have overcome, literally, I have conquered the world. Open your Bible with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, I think this is perfect timing, I didn't plan on this timing, this was in the schedule for a long time, but I am thankful that this is God's word to us on March 15th, 2020, and I I think this of all days is a day that we need to hear it. Genesis chapter fourteen verse one and it came about in the days of Amraphel king of Shinar, Arioch King of Elisar, Chedorlaomer King of Elam, and Tidel King of Goim, that they made war with Berah, king of Sodom, and Ber king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Admah, and Shimabar, king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Sedim, that is the salt sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim and the Zuzim in Ham, and Emim in Shava, Kirathaim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El-Paran, that is, by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who live in Hazazon-Tamar. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the kings of Admah, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out. And they arrayed for battle against them in the land of Sidim, excuse me, in the valley of Sidim. Against Chedalamir, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them, but those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions, and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew... Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Ischal, and brother of Aner. And these were allies with Abram. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word says that faith, faith that we want to see grow this morning, that that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak as your word is preached And I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are eager to repent and to believe. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This text celebrates three things. And the first of those things is unimaginable courage. I want you to try to feel the weight of the events of Genesis 14. It's, it's the story of the first recorded war in the Bible. And, and let me begin by introducing you to the two sides of the conflict. First, you have the bad guys. The bad guys we see in verse 1. They are Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. Now I'll leave you for, for you to find out more about these guys, but I will say one thing, that these kings were four kings over four countries in present-day Iraq. Then you have, on the other side, the other bad guys. We see that in verses 2 through 3. They made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bereshah, king of Gomorrah. And with Shinab, king of Adma, and Shimabir, king of Zeboyim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. We're going to see this in coming chapters, but these are kings of very wicked nations. We see this. Look back at chapter 13 and verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. In fact, if you know anything about Hebrew, the Hebrew word for evil is ra and rashah. And we see the word evil in the names of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Berah and Ber-Shah. We have the bad guys and the other bad guys. Verse 4 tells us about the the bad blood that was between these two groups. This was a relationship of oppression and then rebellion and then retaliation. We see this in verse 4. 12 years they had served Chetalat Amir, but the 13th year they rebelled. This is how the ancient world worked. You have a strong king who says to a, young, to, a, to a weaker king, Listen, pay me a bunch of money, and I promise you that I won't come and attack you. If you've ever seen the, the, the movie um, A Bug's Life, you kind of get the picture. Amir is like the grasshoppers, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are like the ants. And after 12 years of living under Chetalaamir's thumb... These kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their allies say, Listen, we're done serving you, and if you think you're man enough to come here and say something to us about it, won't you come and say it to our face? Well, Chetalatomir obviously thought he was man enough, and so he and three of his allies set out on a campaign of wrath and bloodshed. Let me show you. This is this is going to be hard for you to see, but let me try to just show you this a little bit. This is this is this is the nation of Israel. So here's the Sea of Galilee. Here we have the Jordan River, and here we have the Dead Sea. So these guys are coming from way over here in Iraq. They march all the way down. They come down the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and I mean they are they are destroying kingdom after kingdom all along the way. And then they come back up to meet in battle the kings that they came to discipline here. with at Sodom and Gomorrah down at the bottom of the Dead Sea. Now You can imagine as you plow through countries like this, you get stronger and stronger and stronger with each and every victory. Your soldier's morale increases greater and greater. You capture more and more food and money and weapons. And as we'll learn later, more and more women. And at the same time, your opponents get more and more intimidated. And so by the time we get to chapter, to chapter 14, verse 8, Chetalatomir and his, his boys are feeling really good and ready to fight. My guess is by this time, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, who met them in the battlefield, are wishing they had just paid Chetalatomir his money, but it's too late. And in verse 8, the battle is on, but it doesn't seem like much of a fight. Look at verse 8. And the king of Sodom and Gomorrah and the king of, excuse me, the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Admah and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela Bedezoar came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sedim. Against Chedalaamir, the king of Elam and Tidal, king of Goyim and Amraphel, king of Shinar and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sedim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them, but those who survived fled into the hill country. Look at the results of the battle in verse 11. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their food supply, and departed. Then we get to verse 12. In verse 12 is kind of where the music stops. Verse 12 is where we learn that the, that the writer of Genesis has not just given us the history of the ancient Near East. That what, what he's doing is he is... He's giving us more because he tells us in verse 12 that Lot has been captured. You remember that Lot is not just anybody. Lot is Abram's nephew. Lot is the one who's been with Abram since he left Ur of the Chaldeans. Lot is the one who went to Abram with Abram to Egypt and back. Lot has been taken captive by Amir, And as you might guess, our main character, God's man Abram, is going to get involved. Look at verse 13. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew, Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Ischal and the brother of Anar, and these were allies with Abram. And I want you to think about verse 13 for a second. Cheddala Amir has just defeated on his way to the real fight six kings. That was in verses five through seven, one of whom is the Raphaim. And if you go home and look this up, and especially if you have a King James Version, normally the Raphaim is translated in the King James Version by the word giants. These men are known to be incredible warriors, and they're just people on the way to the real battle. But then they get to the battle, and they defeat five more kings in verses 8 through 10, and they take all their stuff. And then after the battle, one survivor runs, and he tells and he tells not a, a leader of another pack of powerful kings, but he tells a man, God's man, Abram. And I want you to notice in verse 13 what Abram is called. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now we talked about this back in Genesis chapter 10, but if you remember, this word Hebrew is is not a flattering label. It was a term that would be used much like a racial slur against all the people in the surrounding nations who hated the Jews. Think about this. In in fact, hold your hand. Don't, Don't peek hold your hand over verses 14 through 16 so you're not tempted to peek and ask yourself the question, if you were Abram, what would you do? What do you expect Abram to do? you expect Abram to say, "Well, now it's time for me to get out of town? you expect Abram to say, you know what, this is really bad for Lot. Lot I told Lot he should have never gone down to Sodom and Gomorrah, but he did anyway, hate to be him. Would you would you build an altar and call your whole household together and say, guys, we've got to pray for Lot. Lot's in bad shape. Let's get together and pray the Lord delivers him. I want you to notice what Abram did. He didn't run for his life. He didn't say, I'd really hate to be Lot. He didn't build a stronger house. He didn't even take a day to think about it. I want you to notice what he did. Look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men born in his house, three hundred and eighteen, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and brought back his and also brought back his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people, without a hint of hesitation. Abraham took look at verse fourteen took his trained men and led them out. Literally, the text says that he, he drew his sword, and he chased them down the, he chased down the dreaded and feared Chettala Amer. And the Bible says that he caught up with them in Dan, which is way up here, 120 miles away. And then when he got there, look what he did in verse 15, he divided his forces against him by night, he and his servants, he defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah which is north of Damascus, we're talking about way up here, this is in Dan, he ran them off all the way into Damascus, which means that basically what Abram is doing is saying, I'm going to chase them until they're all the way out of the promised land. I love the way the writer tells the story. In verse 5, it says that Chetalatomer and the kings with him came and defeated the Raphaim. In verse 7, it says exact same word. The word is actually that he struck. It says they turned back to, Mish- to end Mishpat and to Kadesh and conquered all the country of the Amalekites. But then we get to verse 15 and we notice the exact same word. He divided his forces against him by night. He and his servants and Abraham defeated them. You can go home and look this up, but when this, when Hebrews chapter seven verse one references this story, it references like this as the slaughter of the kings. And then in verse fifteen, Abram chases them out of the promised land. He brings back what he came for: all the goods of Sodom and Lot and his stuff and the women. This is why I say this is the original eighteen. I don't know what you call that, but I think that courage sums it up pretty well. My plan is for us to spend a whole week on this topic of courage, but let me just begin to at least get you thinking about why it was that made Abram so courageous. And here's the answer. Because Abram may have been just only one man. He's at least 75 years old. I tend to think of him as a shepherd, but Abram shows up to be a warrior, he's only one man, but he had personal promises from God. He had good promises of land that he had not yet received. He had good promises of children that had not yet been conceived. He had promises of blessing that had not yet been retrieved. And what did Abram do in response to the promises of God? Here's the answer. Believed. He believed the promises of God. God had told him in chapter 12, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And Abram staked his life on those promises. And that faith in his God ignited not mere talk, but courage. Courage in the depths of his soul. The courage to confront four kings who had just crushed all of his neighbors. Let me ask you a question. The situation today on the tables of coronavirus... This will pass. There will be another crisis that takes its place. But the question in every one of our lives is today and will remain, are you going to trust the Lord? Whatever the outcome, whatever happens, we don't know what's going to happen. It might get very, very bad. Whatever the case whatever the change of your plans, whatever the heartbreak, whatever the pain, are you going to trust the Lord? Are you going to trust the Savior who gathered His disciples together? He said, I'm telling you, it's going to get really, really bad. But in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, He says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for... The Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Are you going to trust Him? Well, what we have in this passage is a really good reminder of what happens when you do. What did Abraham do? Uh, against all odds, he trusted the Lord. Now, let me ask you the question: Did Abraham make the right choice? Let's just be honest. Abram looked like an idiot. Can you imagine what his neighbors were thinking? Uh, Abram, I don't know if you saw that army that was just coming through here. I don't know if you heard CNN and all the nations that they have been capturing. And you, 75-year-old shepherd, are going to take your 318 people and you're going to go chase him down? You're an idiot. Abram trusted the Lord and I'm glad he did I, I quote it all the time but Romans 10 11 deserves deserves be quoted again whoever believes in him will not be disappointed but I want you to notice that we're not looking for easy answers here I want you to notice that the way the Bible tells a story is nuanced L- look at verse 14 When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men. Abram had trained men. Abram didn't get the news about Lot and say, Oh, I better put together an army. He already had an army. of people who had been born in his house. He was ready for things like this. A legit army. And in verse 14, he leads them out. He was prepared. This is very important. Proverbs 14, A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. Abram had human friends. We're going to see this when we get down to verse 17. There was an alliance who went with him. They came in handy in this fight. And I want you to notice if you look at verse 15 that Abraham exercised skill in his war strategies. He divided his soldiers by night in this in this. surprise night operation it's just good for us to be reminded that God is often very pleased to do incredibly spiritual work and even miraculous work through very ordinary means God uses means you hear this this means here's what this means it means it's not unspiritual for you to wash your hands it's not unspiritual for you to say, I'm going I'm to stay away from mass groups of people. But it's wrong for you to trust those things. L- listen to this from Psalm 33. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength behold the psalmist says look the eye of the lord is on those who fear him on those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine i think proverbs twenty-one thirty-one is a fantastic summary of this the horse is prepared for the day of battle prepare prepare your horses for the day of battle but victory belongs to the Lord so wash your hands let's suspend the greet each other with a holy kiss for a little while right but when one of our shut-ins calls Or one of the several people we have in our congregation who has MS calls and said, I think I have the virus and I need help. Let's go to their house and help them. Do you see? Which really leads me to the next thing I want you to see in this text. Faith gives birth to courage and courage empowers love and real love always fuels unshakable commitment. Real love is always costly. Real love is going to cost you something. Like My guess is that pressing Paul's on his life and traveling over 320 miles to risk his life to rescue his stupid nephew was not on Abram's to-do list that morning. I mean, when you think about this, you keep in mind, Lot's in this mess largely from his own fault. We saw this a few weeks ago. He he should have submitted to Abraham. He should have found some way for them to be together. He should have stayed next to, in cooperation with the one who was under the blessing of the Lord. He should never have gone down to Sodom. It was greed that got him there in the first place. In chapter 13, we're told how wicked twice the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are. And in verse 14, the very names are evil. He should have never been there. And yet... When Lot's nephew, whom he loves, is in trouble, Abram put it all on the line in order to go help him. I'm trying to be brief, but I hope you're willing to see that real love is willing to pay the price. Imagine how inconvenient this mission was. And it's just a good reminder, love is inconvenient. It's always inconvenient. How much did it cost? Here's a real question. How much could it have cost? But Abram loved him. And he's willing to pay the price. I don't have time to explore this, but I'll just say, I hope every boy in this room is saying, I want to live like that. I mean, this is one of those passages that people in this culture will look to and say this is just a prime example of how sexist and patriarchal the Bible is. I just want to remind you, don't give yourself to this fleeting, empty, ignorant version of so-called wisdom, but have your mind transformed by the renewing of the Word of God. It is good for us to raise up boys that want to take care of women, not exploit them, but protect them and everybody else who's weak. This text celebrates unbelievable courage, unshakable commitment, but most importantly, this text gives us a little glimpse of the unequaled, unmatchable, unrivaled, incomparable Christ. Abram fought and won the first battle in the Bible, but can I remind you that Jesus Christ, the son of Abram, fought and won the greatest battle in all of human history and is committed to keeping that fight going until every single one of his enemies is underneath his feet. It's helpful for us to see a text like this and for us just to be humbled and reminded that we don't start out like Abram. Truth be known, we start out like Chetalaamir and Lot. Resistant to Jesus, fighting his authority, and absolutely enslaved to sin. (laughs) I wish I had time to go around this room, and I think we ought to do this more often. We ought to go around this room and share stories of how much we resisted the authority of Jesus Christ in our lives before he invaded our life. And we would go around the room and we would share ways in which we were enslaved to sin. And we would go around the room and we would share the miracle of how Jesus sold us and bought us with His redeeming blood and set us free. It's good for me to study this text. because I'm remembering when I was 22 years old at a party... Absolutely wanting God to leave me alone, get out of my life, and let me live the way I wanted to live. I was at that party. I vividly remember exactly where I was sitting and how much I was celebrating, getting the Christian beside me who is always kind of staying away from things like this. Finally, I got to see him fall and I got to celebrate it. Two weeks later, <laughs> I'm on my face saying, God, I am sorry. I don't know much about Jesus. But I remember that this verse from VBS that said, if I would believe in him that I won't perish, but I have life forever. I vividly remember my sister is witness saying, I just want you to rule over me. Whatever you want, that's what I want. That's what it looked like to me. And those who are watching in my life see this all unfold, but there is more to the story. That victory started long before when a very weak-looking carpenter from Nazareth picked a fight with the prince of the power of the air who had taken his people captive. He looked weak in the garden, sweating drops of blood and begging the father to choose another way but he marched toward a cross. That's what I call courage. He faced not only the forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, all the forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, but he faced the infinite wrath of God all by himself. Being punished, listen to me, this is the best news you will ever hear, being punished with the punishment that I deserve and you deserve. That's what I call unshakable commitment. But with all the might of the devil and every demonic power could not hold him. And three days later, the incomparable Christ walked out of the tomb, was exalted to the right hand of God the Father, far above all rule, and authority, and power, and dominion, and every name that is named and the best news is this news gets personal because Paul said and I thank you Rob for reading it when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of the flesh he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions having cancelled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross when he disarmed the rulers and authorities he made a public display of them having tried over them through Him. Let me tell you what this means. It means it is absolutely stupid for you to resist Him, and it's absolutely unnecessary for you to remain enslaved to sin. Aren't you sick? I am so sick of sin. I'm sick of it making me promise after promise after promise and failing every single time. I'm sick of sin. Wouldn't you want to be free? The old hymn writer is right. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There is power in the blood. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the vilest clean. His blood availed for me. The reality is freedom is yours for the taking if you will repent of your self-sufficiency and trust in the conquering Savior. Listen to this. I'm going to leave you with this. Revelation 19 gives us this glimpse into the future. Genesis 14 was the Bible's first war. Revelation 19 is the Bible's last war. And I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written king of kings and lord of lords then i saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in the mid heaven come and assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men both free men and slaves and small and great and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and all their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped him in image those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh here's the bottom line if you are outside of Christ you have bigger problems than the coronavirus and and if you belong to Christ, you have absolutely nothing to fear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is good for us to stand in this place together and to worship our incomparable Christ. He is our champion. And I pray that you would give him much glory as we turn from trusting ourselves and trusting the media and trusting the medical community that we would trust in Christ. Father, I pray that you would be at work even now drawing people to him. I pray, Father, that you would be searching out weak hearts and they would be found strong in him. And I pray, Father, that you would be finding selfish hearts and giving us grace to love the way our King loves. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.